from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm Adam Schick. All year long, fans have wondered if the Florida softball team had what it took to win a third straight national title. And this weekend, we'll start to find out the answer as they begin play in the NCAA tournament. With that in mind, today we'll break down the regional and the keys for the Gators with head coach Tim Walton. Also, swimming and diving head coach Greg Choi gives us the outlook for the Gators heading to the Olympics, and FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry gets us up to date on other news from around the Gator Nation. But first, when the NCAA tournament field was unveiled for softball last weekend, the Gators found themselves at number one for the fourth time. What makes that so impressive is that in the Super Regional era, no other team has done it more than once. We asked Coach Walton what the secret is to consistently landing in that number one spot. Every year you build a schedule, you have to build a schedule around your team. And you got to figure out what kind of team do you have, what kind of um, road games do you need, what kind of conference games do you have, what kind of conference road games do you have to put yourself in position to you know, be good when it counts, and, that, and that's at the end. And um, the only way to be good at the end is to play a challenging schedule, a, a schedule that's challenging enough to every team, and every team is so different that you know, in some cases you could play too tough of a schedule non-conference and, and lose confidence, or you could play too soft of a schedule and really not have a real understanding of where your team's at. So I think it's just really important to, to have a pulse of what kind of team, what kind of talent, what kind of experience, what kind of um, you know leadership do you have, and, and what do you need to, to build your team to be ready to go in the end. When this bracket comes out, the fans, the media, everyone looks at it and starts breaking down matchups potentially down the road. They see Florida-Georgia Super Regional. They see Florida-Florida State, Oklahoma City. How important is it and how difficult is it to make sure that your players aren't looking ahead at some of the possible matchups? Well, I think, again, when you look at the whole body of work of our schedule and of our team and the number of wins that we have and the the competition that we played, I think that from a media and an outside perspective, you could always say, oh, they'll look past that or or they'll do this. And I think when you put together the team that we have, I don't think anybody on our team ever looks past what we're doing. And if they do, they understand that they're going to have to take care of their business to get to that point. And so maybe it's motivation. Maybe it's just keeps them hungry keeps them going but I think from a coaching standpoint from a preparation standpoint you know the only game that really matters right now is you know is Alabama State you know, the only game that matters after that is the winner of the UCF and Florida Atlantic game and nothing else matters in regards to our schedule and preparation because um, you know you, you get a day off after you win a regional and you got to get ready for the next step. Looking at the field this weekend, highlighted by those teams from the state of Florida, what does it say to you to have five teams from Florida in the top 30 of the RPI and now competing at a high level in regionals? Well, I think that it, it tells me that you got a lot of W's on, on those uh, those teams. You've got a lot of good players on those teams. You've got a lot of good players from the state of Florida on those teams and on those rosters. 
but I think it tells you a lot too about the quality of schedule that uh, the teams in the state of Florida are playing. Not only do we play good schedules against each other, but we got other teams that fly in here in the preseason that are willing to come down to Florida and get, you know, good weather typically and get a, and good good competition. And I think that's what all the teams that are in postseason have is we have an advantage of having good weather, and with good weather comes good teams. With good teams comes good competition, and our teams in the state of Florida have, have defended that home field and, and won a lot of games. You've talked a lot about the impact of video and of scouting and how that's really changing the game. In the SEC, there's so much of that on everybody, but then when you're into regionals and super regionals, you're playing teams that maybe don't have as much out there on them. How much more difficult is the preparation standpoint from your end when you know your opponent has a lot more video of you than you do of them. Yeah, you know, and I think, again, we've been on television. We've had more games on the digital platform here at Florida for longer than anybody in the country. So I think that that's always been a disadvantage to us is that all of our opponents have a lot more information, have a lot more time to prepare for us because they have a lot more things that they can pull from. But with that being said, I think our kids are prepared a lot more because we are on those games. We do play those schedules. And being honest with you, we're able to pull enough video now on our opponents, more so than we ever were before. When you get the automatic qualifiers, you got two qualifiers here in, in this tournament. And so they played on a Sunday or a Saturday to get here. So we have those videos. And then we've played UCF in person, and they have their games, a few games on TV and, and on the Bright House Network. So we're able to get enough. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, nothing's ever going to be fair. You know, there's going to be teams that are better prepared than you. There's going to be teams that are going to be able to get more information on you. But, you know, to me, I'll be honest with you, I would rather my team be more prepared for who we are than more prepared from who another team is. If we're the best prepared team for who we are and we can be the best us that we can be, we're very tough to beat. And it's going to be very difficult to beat us. I don't care what kind of pitcher you have. I don't care what kind of defense you have. I don't care what kind of hitters you have. That's not an arrogant statement. It's just that's how we prepare and that's how we, you know, we always practice to become better. You've talked a lot about peaking at the right time, making sure you're playing your best ball at this time of year. When you look at your team on the whole, how do you feel about where they're at relative to where they need to be? I think, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that same thing about 15 minutes ago, just talking about how, you know, our players and how can we avoid some form of a midseason slump, so to speak, where we you know, maybe drop a couple games in a row. And, you know, now I look at, you know, really, I think we've won 18 of our last 20 or 20 some games. I think this team's just been very consistent. I think we've been very consistent now for two seasons. We've only lost one series um, this season. We've played, you know, a lot of games against a lot of teams. And, you know, the big key for me is, gosh dang, we got Alabama State here in our first game. And we've lost more games to the state of Alabama this year than we've lost to any other state. So we better be ready to play with a team that's real aggressive. A lot of the questions that you faced here at the end of the year have been about your team's offense. And if, if you have enough offense to go out there and win another one of these. An interesting thing that you said was that, in the SEC tournament, you only had five strikeouts, and you thought that number was too low. Can you talk about what that means? Because the, the average person hears five strikeouts, they think that's good. Why, in this case, is that not a good thing? I said it's misleading, and the reason it's misleading is because you can have poor at-bats. You can throw away at-bats. You can, you know, We're a team that grinds out our at-bats through seven innings. It means we are going to go deeper into counts. We are going to you know, foul off a lot of pitches. We are going to have some things happen that we need to do to extend the inning, and I felt like we didn't extend very many innings in the, in the SEC tournament. We had count leverage in a lot of cases, you know, 2-0, 1-0, and we didn't have great swings. We put mediocre swings on, on mediocre pitches and put the ball in play you know, at medium intensity, and I think when you, when you do that, it can be misleading. You can go up there 
swing at first pitch every time, you know, and next thing you know, you look at the sixth inning and wow, Florida's doing great. They have no strikeouts. And um, we struck out two times the other day in the last inning. That was our only two strikeouts. But the reason we did that is because we hit, you know, the first 11 outs, we had like nine ground balls back to the pitcher. And, you know, that to me, that's not a great thing. Final thing for you, as you prepare for this weekend and, and you look at what goes into regionals, what are you most looking to see from your team? What are you going to see this weekend outside of wins and say, that's a success? Well, I think, you know, when you look at what we've done in, in the circle, how well we played defense, those things are, are easy bright spots or you asterisk by them and go, wow, they really did a good job playing defense and really did a good job pitching. I think the, the key for me is us being able to stretch our lineup and, you know, that's the thing that I have really put a lot of emphasis on our team is being able to, you know, our nine hole, our eight hole, our seven hole, our six hole, our five hole, our four hole, whoever those hitters are, we need to do a good job of being able to stretch the lineup. And we've got to get production. When Aubrey Monroe's driving in runs, when Taylor Fuller's driving in runs, when Justine McLean's getting on base, when Janelle Wheaton driving in runs we're really really tough to beat and that's to be honest with you that's what's missing that's the missing ingredients yeah Kaylee Cavista had a couple at bats this weekend where she you know had opportunities to drive in some runs but not very many they pitched around her a ton and uh, you know she had a bunch of walks Amanda Lorenz had a bunch of walks and we need to get our leadoff runner on base I think that's the key that I've seen we got three leadoff runners on base we scored one uh, Kelsey Stewart we, we won the game against Ole Miss we had runners at second and third and no outs and didn't score a run. And then we had, you know, Nicole DeWitt gets on in the seventh and we scored that run. So when we get a runner, a leadoff runner on base, we score a lot. And I think that's going to be our key is get on base. Leadoff batters, get on base. And from there, we got to figure out the right formula of players to come up and just be who you are and do what you do. If you're a singles hitter, hit a single and score a run. If you're a home run hitter, hit a home run. If you strike out every once in a while, you strike out every once in a while. But you're going to have to have the mindset to really, you know, get after that pitcher and uh, you know, and don't get yourself out um, as many times as we have. Not only does Florida have a long history of success in the pool at the collegiate level, but that's also translated to the international stage over the years, highlighted by gold medal performances from the likes of Ryan Lochte and Dara Torres. This summer, the Gators will send another large contingent to Rio seeking Olympic immortality. And Gator Vision Shelby Granath asked Florida swimming and diving head coach Greg Choi about their preparation for the games. We've got a whole group of uh, post-grads, guys that are a little bit older, that have been training all year, uh, separate from the rest of the team. And they're in one focus point, and they've done a little bit of work for a longer period of time. And then the, the guys that have actually swam the collegiate season, they joined back in a little different training for about a month, and we've got those two groups together now. And it, it's been good at this point. Like you said, this time of year, we're a few months away from Rio. So what is training like? What are the athletes doing in and out of the pool? We're in a regular schedule. We're going about nine practices a week. They usually double Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, two hours in the morning, two in the afternoon. And then Tuesday and Thursday, they're going uh, two and a half hours, working more specific things, a lot of strength, technique-oriented issues on Tuesday, Thursday with an idea that we're going to recover a little bit, do our weights on Tuesday, Thursday afternoon, come back again on Wednesday and Friday for another three-practice cycle, finished up with a Saturday morning. Throughout the years, what have you learned, or what's the most important thing you've learned about preparing athletes for the Olympics and the Olympic trials? Uh, the best thing you can do is uh, you've got to feel comfortable with yourself going in. 
So there, there has been a lot of positive things. A lot of things you can see in practice are good. And then you, you've got to try to reduce stress because there's going to be some stress no matter what way you handle it. I think sometimes in the sports world we, we fail to, to miss it. The stress getting ready for an Olympic trials is way different because it only happens once every four years. You miss it, it's not like, oh, well, we'll go back to work next year. You've got to work four more years. Uh, so it's, it's a much, much larger window before you have an opportunity to reprove yourself. And, and I think that intimacy is, is a little bit tough. What are the Olympic trials like for these athletes and for you as a coach? It's unlike any other swim meet they go to. Just because we're gonna, there'll be 12,000 people, it'll be sold out. The U.S. trials is a much larger meet than any other countries. Most countries, they, they really narrow it down and whittle down to a small meet. The U.S. trials will be 1,800 athletes, which might be a little large, but it does provide for a very enthusiastic venue, a lot of variety in ages. But it, it will make uh, it makes warm up a little bit tougher because it's crowded, and then just the the sense of pressure. It's it's the only meet world where second is just as good as first. If you're second, you're still going to get to go, and four weeks later you get a chance to be first. Um, by the same token, third is just about as bad as you can be. There's no difference in third and 130th. You didn't get the job done. So I, I think that's an end, and way different than a lot of other countries. Uh, there are no other opportunities. You do it in that week, or you don't go. When you get sick, something goes wrong. It is what it is. You started talking about that month after trials. What is that time period like and what is going on between trials and the actual Olympic Games? The U.S. trials, there'll be, uh, I think it's a seven to ten days training camp. They'll get three days off, kind of go home and get the clothes clean, get everything squared away, take anything they want to go because they will be at the trial site anywhere from, from six to 11 days, depending on when their events are. They'll have a meeting after the trials, which will be the first organizational team meeting. They'll talk about some logistics, do some sizing and stuff for outfitting, get to go home for three days, and they'll show up in San Antonio for a training camp. And that literally is a training camp. The last two Olympics I've been on the U.S. staff, uh, either as head coach or an assistant, and that 10-day training camp is some of the most intense training I've ever seen. You've got really good athletes at the top of their game knowing they're going to the biggest show that there is. It's a tremendous environment. Then after that, they'll leave San Antonio, spend some time in Puerto Rico, and a much more relaxed environment, it's a little more of a resting camp, refocus, restart themselves, reprepare, getting ready for Rio, and then Rio, they'll go straight from Puerto Rico to Rio and be in the village. What was it like being the head coach of the men's team in 2012? Great learning experience. I think sometimes uh, people miss that. You're surrounded by other really good coaches. You have the advantage of working with the best athletes and those best athletes coaches are giving you input of what they'd like to see their athletes do. So it's, it's a learning experience. At the same time, it's one of those things you might appreciate a little more when it's over than while you're doing it. Uh, there's a stress factor as a coach whenever you go to a competition with your athlete in any sport, uh, whether it's more or less than swimming, I don't know. But you feel an obligation to your athlete, they want them to do the best, and you're vested and you spend a lot of time in it. There's a, a tremendous stress factor when you're working with someone else's athlete. The coach can't go, so you're in charge of helping that athlete at a key point in the year back in. Something will happen once every four years. You made the Olympic team. Uh, their coaches have done their job. The last thing you want to do is drop the ball and not help them get to the next level and do a really good job there. When you put those two things together and the stress of making a lot of decisions that relate to all those athletes. It's tremendous experience, very worthwhile, and you kind of take a real big deep breath when it's over. Elizabeth Beisel is no rookie to the Olympics, the Olympic trials. Um, she's still here training. What has it been like working with her and what have you seen out of her this spring? Uh, great year so far this year. Pretty rocky last year. We did not have a good season at all. But to her credit, we she recognized it. Uh, left the uh, World Championship in Kazan the first time she's uh, didn't make the finals in the 400 I am. We didn't do as good a job training. 
Uh, there were some things that she addressed and we addressed that we thought we could get better at. She's uh, done a tremendous job of taking the, the lack of success last year making a building point. Probably in the best spot I think I've seen her in in a long time. Physically fit, a lot of extra exercise on her own, and racing extremely well. So she, she's in a good spot. And then Caleb Dressel obviously had an outstanding sophomore season here at Florida broke records and set records at SECs and NCAAs. What can you say about him and how has this year prepared him for the position he's in now? He's very, very young. For a sprinter in the world to be 19 and as fast as Caleb is and swimming against guys that are in the prime of their career, learning how to handle that situation is going to be key for him. And everything we've seen, he's shown a good job of doing that. He's extended his training a little bit. He's done some things a little bit different, uh, not afraid to look for new avenues to get better. Overall, what does it mean to you to be at a program here at the University of Florida that produces and has produced so many Olympians? That's just a tremendous opportunity. We're lucky that Jeremy, our athletic director, is understanding of premier performance. He allows you the tools. There's not many schools that are understanding about a guy maybe being a little short at the NC2A meet. We were third at the meet. You know, you know, I'd be a little bit better. Could we have been better? Maybe, maybe not. But I think uh, Jeremy's understanding the depth that every four years it's, it's big for a swimmer. Um, he just understands performance at the highest level. So it's a great opportunity for a coach to be in an environment where you have an ch- opportunity to do those type of things. Not only the athletes, though, the coaching staff here at Florida has so much Olympic experience, whether it's competing at the, the Olympics or coaching. How unique is that? We have a monthly head coaches meeting that is actually kind of a give-and-take session. There's usually a topic we discuss. Uh, it gets off track an awful lot, but it's the head coaches only. So you, you're sitting in a room and you get, um, you got Becky Burley, Tim Walton, Mouse, our track coaches. Holloway is, is just fantastic. You know, Roland Thornquist, we've got a tremendous tennis coach. You've got all those people, Mary Wise. So you, women's coaches, men's coaches, they exchange ideas. It's amazing how the similarities in training and sport, the sports are so different, but the demands on the athlete and to prepare and compete at the highest levels. Once a month, it really upsets me. Every once in a while something will be going on and you miss that meeting because there's always something that meeting you can take away that you can apply to your sports and whether it's motivational or whether it's instructional or whether it's just life skill wise, there's something that's happening that you can bring to your sport and help your athletes do better. It's just a tremendous dynamic. Finally today, we wanted to cover a number of bases across the Gator Nation at this pivotal time of the year, so we sat down with Chris Harry to check off as many boxes as possible. But before we got to the latest news on Florida basketball and tennis, we had to get his take on the remarkable success that Billy Donovan has had in his first year trying to steer Oklahoma City to an NBA title. This guy's got beat by Howard. It was like 100 points in game one, 42, whatever it was. What he was able to do in that locker room to make them believe that they still had a chance in the series speaks to, obviously, his relationship with the players. And something we always knew about him is how good he was in the postseason, how good he was in selling that ideal to a locker room, to his players. And he was always good at adjustments, but... It's a lot different now. You're in the NBA, and he was very, very good in the NSA tournament, obviously, and it was the quick turnaround. Now he has even more of a chance because you're talking about four-game series. You know, you get something happens in the first couple games. You're down 2-1. Well, now Billy Donovan's adjusting with the help of Maurice Cheeks and some of his other assistants, of course. But now they figured out something. They figured out we're going to play bigger against their smaller lineups and we're going to have an advantage. And I think that's probably what they're going to carry over into the Golden State series. And obviously they've made believers out of their team that they can go in and beat Golden State without having beaten them at all during the regular season. So 
I'm really happy for Billy. I'm really happy for his family. This is something, obviously, he always wanted to do, uh, something that his best friends in the profession told him that they thought he would be really good at. It was an itch he had to scratch. He did it, and now he's having some success, and hopefully he'll get some more credit for what he's been able to do with this basketball team. Bringing things back to the home front, his successor, Mike White, has had some change to the makeup of the team. And I know we talked a few weeks ago about the guys who were leaving the program, and now inevitably we find out new players that are coming in. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if we spoke since they, they landed uh, the six eleven kid from down in Bradenton, Gorjot Gak, the Australian kid. Uh, kind of a surprise addition. He got his release from Oklahoma State, and uh, Florida was on him very early in the recruiting process when they first got here, and he ended up going to Oklahoma State. But he's going to help them, give them some depth up front, People think he might be a developmental kind of thing, but just watching some tape of him that I have, you know, he moves really well, he's long, and they believe he's going to fit in well to what they're doing. But the acquisitions of the transfers, we're talking Canyonberry from College of Charleston, we're talking Jalen Hudson from Virginia Tech. They're going to impact this team in different ways, Adam. I mean, Canyonberry is a guy, he's 6'6", very high IQ. He's already graduated with two degrees from College of Charleston, son of Rick Berry, uh, Hall of Famer, so his bloodlines and his obviously his basketball knowledge are going to be very, very high. This guy's a shooter. Step into threes in transition, something they missed last year. He's going to help them right away. knows how to play. He's a guy who's just by his presence on the court, Adam, is going to change some things for both Casey Hill. It's going to spread things out a little bit. Guys aren't going to be able to collapse so much on Casey Hill if this guy's standing on the wing. they got to honor that. And all he has to do is hit one three-point shot. They had so many guys who couldn't do that last year. So just by being on the court, he's going to maybe change some things. He's going to help Johnny Bunu out by maybe spacing the floor out better. Like I said, Casey Hill also. So good addition, can play right away. ESPN had him ranked as the number one rated uh, grad transfer available. So kudos to Mike White for being able to talk uh, Canyon Berry into coming here. Jalen Hudson from Virginia Tech. They've had good luck with Virginia Tech transfer before with Dorian Finney-Smith having been there. But this guy's going to have to sit out a year. He's 6'6". He's a 2-3 kind of player. Not a bombs-away three-point shooter by any stretch of the imagination. I went back and looked at, uh, there was, I think, 19 games in his career where he attempted two or less threes, and there was 12 games where he didn't attempt any. This guy's an athlete, a slasher kind of guy who can use his sneaky athleticism a little bit to kind of go get his own shot. Now, the Gators only had one guy last year, Kayvon Allen, capable of getting his own shot. We saw a couple years ago when they had Casey Prather who could do it, uh, Scotty Wilbekin who could do it. That really helped uh, space out the floor. So, Jalen Hudson next year is a guy they're not have to have worry about selling him on how many minutes he's going to play because he has to sit out. So he'll have a year to learn the system. He'll have a year to help his teammates uh, regarding his uh, role on the scout team and kind of find his way uh, in the Mike White program that way. So two kind of unexpected additions, but certainly two welcome ones if you're Mike White. One of the notable things about Canyon Barry is that much like his dad, he shoots free throws in an underhanded manner. Not completely underhanded, but certainly very different. And doing that raised his percentage significantly. I think a lot of people look over there at the complex, know there's a few guys who could really use some help (laughs) with free throws. Is there any thought that maybe that will seep into the rest of the team? Yeah, I go back to the... Somebody asked Mike White in an interview situation recently, how many guys on the team are you better free throw shooters than? And he goes, let's see, we have 14 on a team, 14. <laughs> so uh, here comes Canyon Barry, who's around 80% for his career. And you right, he does the quote-unquote granny style that Rick Barry was a 90% shooter using that style. And I don't know if he can step right in and all of a sudden hand the ball to guys, to guys and say, this is how you do it underhand. Maybe some guys will mess around with that some. Maybe it will work for some. But he's only going to be here a year. Having said that, I think having a guy who's going to be on the floor, you now have an option 
late in the game of a guy to put out there who you can inbound the ball to who's probably going to make the free throw. And let's be honest, except for Kayvon Allen, who was about 84% last year, there weren't a whole lot of guys you had confidence in on that front. Dodo actually got better as the season went. I think he ended up being like 76%, so good for him. But uh, that's a drastic change to have to make on the fly. But Canyonberry will be here, I believe, summer B, so the guys will have time in the offseason to mess around. I don't know if they'll go that direction, but it'll certainly be an option for them. Last week, we had both Roland Thornquist and Brian Shelton on the show to talk about NCAA first and second round action. Both the men's and the women's team hold serves, so to speak. They advanced to Tulsa. Now, chances for both of them to go deeper into the tournament. Yeah, I don't think they lost a match. They both advanced to the Sweet 16, which is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, this weekend. Roland Thornquist is back to the top of the polls again. His team didn't play great in their uh, 4-0 win over Syracuse, and I think what's notable in both those matches, for in terms for the women, all the matches were won at four, five, and six. So none of the top players, you know, you're talking Brooke Austin at number one and Brianna Morgan at number three. None of those girls were able to finish matches. So, you know, he has their attention, and that's something that I'm sure he'll take with him. Now they got to play Stanford out there in the Sweet 16, and that's one of the teams that beat them. And one of the reasons they're low seed is because there's some players that didn't play early on in the year, and the computer rankings takes that into consideration and a lot of stuff. So. It'll be a tough Sweet 16 match for them. Uh, in terms of the men, you know, you really got to uh, hand it to Brian Shelton. He came here set to change the culture of this program in 2012, and uh, you know it's been a struggle for him a little bit. That his first year, they lost to University of Denver, a bottom seed team, when they had a regional here. That never happened before. First round exit, and. You know, he dug his heels in, and he didn't give up. I mean, we're building it my way, is what he said. And he brought in guys he wanted, character guys, guys who are going to work hard. And, you know, this year he wins the SEC uh, tournament. They rolled through USF to get to the Sweet 16. They got the number one doubles team in the country in Diego Hidalgo and Gordon Watson. So they have a chance to go there and not only do some damage in the NCAA tournament uh, as a team, but also those guys will have a chance to maybe pick up some hardware, at least play for some hardware, whether it's the team draw or whether it's in the singles and the doubles draw. So congratulations to Brian Shelton. He's got that program going exactly where he kind of envisioned it when he got here. And that's going to do it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher to make sure you never miss an episode. And feel free to send feedback to gatorspodcast at gmail.com or tweet at gatorspodcast. Check out our new installment when it drops next Thursday for the latest on softball, baseball, and more. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at Softball Regionals.